Um, but we are in the middle of a message series called Elephant in the Room, where we talk about topics and discuss things that are usually shied away from. Maybe they're a bit controversial, or maybe they're just a bit confronting. And um, we are not shying away. We've heard um, things about the sanctity of life and the value of humanity and how that works itself out in things like pornography in that industry, in um, things like domestic violence, in abortion and euthanasia. We've learned that Christians can sin, but the power of sin has no power over them, um, and how to get set free from that moment and live in the freedom of Jesus. Um, and just so many good things. We've got so much more coming up. We have like two months of this. We're in like week three. Um, look out. And uh, but today I'm actually going to uh, take a moment where I'm not actually going to address something like major controversial. I'm going to address how to wield knowledge about the elephant. Um, and so we are talking, the, thing, the question I'm answering is how do we engage with culture to see transformation? How do we engage with culture to see transformation? Which premises the fact that you can engage in culture to not see transformation. And um, you can, who knows that things are confusing, yeah, like what news channel do you watch? Is it real? Is it not fake news? Not fake news. Are they meddling? Um, is it just opinion columns? Like what is truth? And then if you know the truth, how do you wield it in such a way to actually bring transformation? Because when I look at the stories of Jesus in his life and reality on the earth, I see him addressing some major things but then actually just setting people free. He's the one that was attractive enough for young people or children to come and gather around him, gentleness and kindness, that he's so attractive, yet he's got a spine of steel in his convictions so that people want to kill him too. Have you thought about that tension? That young people are wanting to run to him and then religious leaders are wanting to kill him. What sort of strange person is this? Um, like... You might be good with kids, but I'm not sure who's trying to kill you. Uh, and that's not part of the kids' leaders' pitch either. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is in that way he was able to bring transformation. So many people just pulling people out of their mess and, and enlightening them. And it's the same story we've witnessed in our own lives. I look around the room, I see faces where I see narratives of transformation. Um, but outside of the context of the church, when we're engaging in non-Christian spaces, which is, faith, let's face it, every other space, every other space, how on earth do we bring truth and transformation? Because the temptation is just to add to the noise. And when we're a part of the noise, there's no truth there. It's just confusion. But we need to bring a spirit of truth and grace in order to bring the, the love of Christ and the revelation of Jesus to bring transformation. So we're engaging in that. Just to, as a quick definition, I know culture is one of those words that means everything and nothing all at the same time. Um, and so the way we're using the word culture here this morning is I'm, I'm using it quite loosely, quite broadly in order to be dynamic and applicable to your circumstance. Because culture might be, there might be a macro culture of what we experience in terms of 2021 and the certain language and the meaning and the music and all those things that contribute to values and culture. Um, but there's also micro cultures as you go into your family, as you go into your workplace that are unique to that context. 
And so we need to be able to be dynamic and sensitive in order to sense what is required of that context and understand what the Spirit of God is saying to it in order to bring truth into that moment and transformation into that moment. Um, before we move on, we need to read Scripture because I love what Pastor Jared said. If in doubt, read Scripture and we're all good. Um, at, least, at least you can know that. And um, we're going to read from a story in Genesis 21. And it's got a couple of, couple of key people and, a couple of, and one peripheral person. Um, the key guy is named Abraham. Now, Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. Same Abraham. Same Abraham. And um, he's engaging in conversation with a gentleman by the name of Abimelech. Because Old Testament names are awesome. And um, Abimelech is the king of a region that will is either known or will be known as the Philistines. And you can pull some meaning from that, from narratives and first and second Samuel and onwards and all that goodness. Um, but this is before any of that, and Abimelech, King Abimelech, is a non-God-following individual. And we get this moment where he's engaging in a conversation where he approaches Father Abraham in a, a bit of a conflict resolution plea um, to get ahead of things. So we're going to read, and it is going to be a good old time. Genesis 21, 22 reads this, at the time, Abimelech and Phicol, if that is how you say, the commander of his army said to Abraham, God is with you in all you do. Remember, Abimelech is a non-God following, a non-God honoring king. He has an entire kingdom, he's an entire army, and by witnessing the promise and the ability for Abraham to walk in faithfulness, he has seen from the external um, that God is with this guy, and I need to engage with him. And he says, now, therefore, you swear to me uh, here by God. So he's seen the expansion and the influence and the prosperity of Abraham and saying, I need to get ahead of the curve here. If I don't, there's going to be probably some military rift that goes down in the future where some people are going to die and it's not going to be fun. Abraham is growing at such a rate of influence that we need to, we need to get this over and done with now. So there's some wisdom here. Um, and so we read, now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my prosperity. But as I have dealt with you kindly, so you will deal with me and with the land you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And then we get this second part of the conversation when Abraham reproved or rebuked Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now pause there for a moment. That doesn't sound very exciting. I'm not sure how your wells are seized or your wells are not seized, but I don't have wells. Um, and so we need to understand that in this period of time, land is everything. Land is everything. There is no vehicles, there's no bank accounts, there's no assets, there's no investment funds. Land is everything. And let's face it, land without water sucks. And so having a well of water on your point of land is actually the very source of your ability to stay in that place. If there was a rift, often it would result in a military combat where people in this moment would uh, fight and probably die, because that's how war works. And in this, there's a conflict, there's this meaning and layers behind it. So there's about a well that Abimelech's servants have seen, and Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. 
You did not tell me, and I have not heard it until today. Plausible deniability. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men had made a covenant. Abraham set seven lambs, remember seven, of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of the seven lambs you have set apart? He said, the seven lambs you will take from my land, or from my hand, sorry, that is, that this will be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba. Now, Beersheba means well of seven or well of oath. Meaningful things. We'll get into this in a second. When then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander, um, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree, remember tree, in Beersheba and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned or stayed in that land for a long time, for a long time. Have you ever noticed that the Old Testament sometimes makes absolutely zero sense? Like, I can follow the New Testament pretty well, because, like, I can understand stories of Jesus meeting people. Like, Jesus meets the leper and heals them. I get that. But when Abraham offers seven lambs to a guy as a peace treaty, I have no idea is what is going on. So we need to understand that in this text, the people that it's originally written to have some predisposed understanding to the significance of these symbols. And so what we are planning to do is understand this text and how it impacts our now, our here, our today, and that we are not needing to be farmers with lambs, though you can if you want, um, but we can actually engage in this as a, as a symbol of what Jesus has demonstrated for us to engage with to bring transformation. Now, the whole point of this conversation, as we said, is transformation is an option, but it's not necessarily natural. You have to choose transformation. But the premise to all of this is this. We are meant to engage culture. We are meant to engage culture. Genesis 12, which is a few chapters beforehand, we read this story where Abraham is not yet Abraham. He's now known by another name called Abram. Now, not only is that just shorter and easier to say, it is because that um, he has not yet come into the promise of God, where God then renamed him in that name of promise. And so his identity changed when his purpose came. And that's the same thing with us. And Abraham, Abram was called out from among the people, just like we are called out from among the people and chosen by God, and we are given promise and purpose and given righteousness and freedom to, in order to operate and outwork that in the world around us. And so we see this as the beginning of that promise. Adam and Noah, their stuff has gone down, and this is the first circumstance where God is providing a hope for the future. And Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 says, The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will also curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. It is always God's plan to intervene with everyone on the planet. It is always God's plan to have relationship and engagement with every single person on the planet. It says in Scripture that He desires that none will perish. 
none will perish. Do you think we need to start dreaming a little bit bigger than filling an auditorium? Then we need to actually start believing that none shall perish. None shall perish. We need to start operating in the strength of what he's called us to and start believing what God says is actually true. And so we see that in Matthew 28, we see this similar narrative where Jesus has died, he's defeated sin, and he's brought uh, this demonstration of what it means to live in the newness of life, the abundant life um, that we are called to mimic through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this, he then gives this commissioning to his disciples in Matthew 28, starting in 18. It won't be on the screen, but it says, um, I have been given all authority on earth, therefore you go and preach my word, teaching people and making disciples of all nations. Teach them my ways, baptize them, and you will go out and believe me, I'll be with you. I'll be with you and I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. You are meant to engage culture. You are meant to be active in our participation in your family in order to change that and influence that in for the kingdom of God and the ways of God. You are meant to engage your workplace. You know, you might be the only Christ representative someone ever sees in your workplace. And so we ask many questions about what if I say this, what will their response be? I think we need to ask a different question being, what if I say nothing? What if I say nothing? Nothing may happen, nothing may change. And so we are meant to engage culture. And in this, I need to pull something out. Being in our current cultural situation from a macro perspective, there is a thing called privatization. And essentially it's born out of this relativity sense where you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, but let's not talk about it in public. You know how they say don't talk about, uh, po uh, what is it, politics and religion? It's probably because they're the only two things that matter. Uh, <laughs> we need to understand and engage in these things, but in doing so, we actually, there's a, uh, we are exposing ourselves before people. Now, in this, we need to understand one more thing. We're again about to get to more content in a second. But people are not public opinion. People are not public opinion. Public opinion is that which is shouted the loudest by, it could be the majority, it could be the minority, but it doesn't matter, whatever is loudest and generally what is most controversial. Now, this being a very simple reason, it's let's not go hard and fast and being or condemning on the media and that sort of stuff. We need to understand one thing. Media is business. Media is business. And in business, you need to understand supply and demand, economics, we get this. But media has learned that controversy is attractive. Controversy is attractive, and so if I want to make money and survive and maybe thrive as a business, I need to actually engage people with something that is gonna get their attention. And so we understand that news isn't actually news, um, because if news was just news, we'd get this really boring report. Uh, who has ever, I did some engineering in university, science reports aren't necessarily the most exciting things on the planet. And so understanding this, we apply some journalism to it, but as soon as you apply some sort of interpretation, you're also getting that person's opinion. And just innately, this works itself out to say that everything from this platform of news and media isn't, is tainted with opinion. And we need to understand this. This isn't something where like, oh no, the media is against us. No, we just need to understand it and so identify it and combat it within our own lives. 
And so understanding that, that what is most public is generally the loudest, we need to understand that people are not just generally what is loudest. People are people. People are people. You know, the person that I work across from at work is just a person. They're not this big, intimidating, mystical figure of public opinion where if I poke my head out, it's sure to get cut off. Because that is the spirit of intimidation that comes across, and we'll find out that the world wages war very differently than we wage war. We wage war with spiritual things, but things like intimidation are no good for spiritual battles. And so we need to understand that the, we are not waging war against the public opinion, or we are, sorry, we are not engaging just the public opinion, we are engaging the individual. And when you engage the individual, suddenly it's about relationship. Suddenly it's about connection. Suddenly it's about trust and listening. Can I say that it's about listening? <laughs> and actually hearing people. Jesus was phenomenal at this. Because even when the Pharisees came at him with questions in order to trip him up, he questioned the questioner to see their motive and address the motive. Even the Pharisees says, what is the greatest commandment? And he goes and he says it. And he says, you are right, teacher. And Jesus just shocks him and saying, you are close to the kingdom of heaven. And then suddenly they stop asking him questions. Interesting. <laughs> but it, we address individuals, not just a public opinion. We need to believe, believe the best about people and have a soft heart for people. I love that um, line from Pastor Mark. We have to have thick skin and soft hearts because people will disappoint and all these things, but we need to always be welcoming, always be open to engage the individual. We know, need to know our enemy and our weapons. In this narrative of Abimelech and Abraham, we see two very different opinions and abilities to engage in conflict. Abimelech, though he's bringing a peace treaty, is also bringing an army commander. Now, I'm not sure how you bring your army commanders, but generally I don't mean a lot of peace if I'm bringing my military might. Generally, that's, that's a bit of intimidation, saying, Abraham, if you don't sign on the dotted line, do you know what? My man Fikol here, he represents an army. And so if you better sign that because you do the math, I'm an army, I've got an army commander and you don't. Given he does, Abraham does have like 300 men, we find out, and all that sort of stuff. But there is a spirit of intimidation in this place. Compare this with Abraham's response. And this is where we get to the lambs and the trees. It sounds strange, but it's true. Um, <laughs> but Abraham gets seven lambs and he offers them over. And then he plants a tree in representation for the peace treaty. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but in the New Testament, we hear a lot about the kingdom of um, heaven on earth. And so we get a lot of heavenly language. You are seated in heavenly places where Christ is seated. You know these sort of languages? You won't find that as much in the Old Testament. You won't find you are seated in heavenly places in the Old Testament. What they do is they have a different strategy. They pull on uh, Garden of Eden language because for them, that is the same representation of what heaven is to us. So for them, remember that the Garden of Eden was a place where God's reality ruled. There was no sin. There was no shame. Man was able to be naked and unashamed. And so there was this absolute peace that in, in uh, the Genesis account, we see the seventh day is a very significant day because not only did God stop, that's where we get the word uh, Sabbath, 
Um, but there's a moment where he settled into his place and settled into reign and rule. And so when he pulls out seven lambs from his flock in order to representation, uh, represent this peace treaty, what Abraham is doing is saying, I'm pulling some of my heavenly language and heaven reality into this circumstances. When you're pulling intimidation, I'm going to pull on heaven. And when he plants the tree by the well, the trees by living water, is this not Eden narrative where garden and trees exist? Psalm 1 where we see you will be planted by, uh, planted by streams of living water producing fruit season in and season out. This is all language of heaven, the all language of Eden to pull in. And so we understand this from something similar in Ephesians 6 where it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So where people in the world fight with intimidation, manipulation, gossip, rumor spreading, trickery, we provide a whole different repertoire and arsenal. So how does this work itself out? This is not an us and them fight. Let us lose the us and them mindset. You are not battling people. You are battling the strategies of Satan. You are battling discouragement. You are battling uh, myths and lies. You are battling strongholds and things set up against people. Even if people are against you, you're not fighting them. You're fighting the spirit that is leading them. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. Take courage in the fact that you are not battling the person in front of you. You are fighting a heavenly battle. And we cannot be distracted from this because if the devil can't disempower us from being active. He's going to discourage us and distract us. And so he's going to say, that person offended you. Oh man, isn't offense a great distraction from being on purpose? We can't afford to be offended. I can't afford to be offended. People are very offensive. <laughs> but I can't afford to be offended. I've got something more important on mission. I can't afford to be offended. I can't afford to be discouraged because circumstances are discouraging. When you're on purpose, let me tell you, the Satan will be after you. He will take every strategy. He will take the back door in order to disappoint you and bring you to your knees. But let me tell you, God is for you, so who can be against you? We need to understand that engagement does not mean imposition. Um, who has ever been to Westfield and seen the guy in the middle of the auditor uh, in the middle of the way, and they're like eyeballing you, and you see them and you try and break eye contact, put on your angry eyes and just walk sternly through? Some of you just don't know how to say no, and you're like trying to be really nice. They're trying to manipulate you. You can say no, um, <laughs> but. Even if they were trying to give you something free and that was good for you, I'm not taking it. Why? Because their um, method of communication is an imposition into my journey. It's an imposition. Whereas if we understand that engagement is not, I'm going to impose my opinion upon you, then we're actually engaged. Try and win and try and convince someone of something through an argument. See how that goes. <laughs> if you're married, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and keyboards are not great ways of communicating value. As soon as you get on a Facebook argument, just shut that thing down. Just shut it down. Just unfollow that person. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. 
Because you're not going to bring transformation. You're going to bring extra noise. And that's not love. And so we need to understand. And um, Paul gives the, a perfect illustration in 2 Corinthians 9. Though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Down to 21. To those who have the law, I became like one, not having the law. I am the one free from God's law. So to win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by any means possible, I might save some. We do not wage with the things. We do not engage in impersonal conversations only. We engage individuals, not just the public opinion. And we use heavenly language or heavenly weapons, a heavenly arsenal, pulling on the things of heaven. Like you might be like, what are that? The sword of the spirit. Let me tell you some of your weapons. Galatians 5.22, but the spirit or the fruit of the spirit is love, it is joy, it is peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You want to stick it to the devil? Forgive someone. You want to stick it in the spiritual places? Be kind. Engage people as people because they are <laughs> They are. And let me tell you this, gentleness is not the same as passiveness. Because the man in Abraham's story, he was confronting a non-Christian king with an army. That's not passive. The man who wrote uh, Galatians 5 was Paul. He was the one that confronted Caesar, the ruling nation. He was the one that ended up in prison because he was too confronting. Passiveness is not the same as gentleness. But I want to land here and this is, we need to believe that there is power in the name of Jesus. We need to believe there is power in the name of Jesus. I think some of the discouragement, maybe some of the offense, some of the division, some of the uncertainty within our own ranks comes from maybe some misplaced faith. We trust the ability for God to set things in motion in government. We trust in the ability to have peaceful protests. We trust in democracy and all these things, but we do not trust in them as our all-in future hope. There is only one source of transformation and redemption, and that is in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. We do every effort. We do sign petitions. We do show up. We are active, but we know that we are only participators in a heavenly thing, a heavenly mission, and it is only by the power of God that comes out. Man, I struggle with this sometimes because misbelief and unbelief is so subtle because it's coming in in a thought what 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 is the world coming to that's language affirming that man god isn't big enough but my god is savior hey i don't understand everything that's going on at the moment but i know that who does and who is on the throne who is sovereign in john 15 last thing as the band comes and joins us john 15 18 if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would, have, um, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. 26, when the advocate comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must, you will also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 16 verses 1, all this I have told you, so you will not fall away and be discouraged. Verse 33, I have told you these things, so that in me you have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me tell you, when you stand up, you will face resistance. But know that in your obedience, you're first and foremost approved by God. You don't need the approval of man. As Psalm says, if God is, um, what can man do to me? Psalmist says that. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He has overcome the world. I remember reading about stories of the, the Christian movement within the Chinese church, and they would glorify in the fact that they were in prison because they were obedient to Jesus. Man, they preferred to be in prison and in obedience than accepted and out of obedience. What a challenging word. What a challenging word. And man, I need the grace of God to do that. I need the grace of God to step inside of me and take over my heart because he is good and it is only his name and it's only his righteousness that is ability to transform people. We wield gentleness, we wield love, we wield the weapons of heaven, but it is only he who transforms. And we need to know that it is, there is power in the name of Jesus.